you know, you don't have a handle on fire. Fire does strange stuff. Uh, it does what it feels like doing. It doesn't do what you want it to do. Uh, you're not going to stop that from happening. People keep dying on wildland fires, sometimes in very large numbers, uh, as on Darnell Hill, 19 people. I mean, you have to go back 100 years uh, to get a higher number uh, than that. So why does this happen? Uh, well, it happens because wildland fire is really dangerous stuff. The wildland urban interface uh, has grown like topsy, and people do fight harder uh, when homes are at stake. Welcome to Living with Fire, a podcast that explores the critical role fire plays in America's forests, lands, and communities. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today you'll hear my conversation with John McLean, an author who has spent decades investigating and writing about wildfire fatalities. One of the first things I did when I first decided to pursue fire was buy John's book, Fire on the Mountain, about the tragic South Canyon fire that took 14 lives in 1994. The second thing I did was by Young Men in Fire, which was written by John's dad, Norman McLean, about the fatal Man Gulch fire in 1949. During our conversation, John talked about how his dad influenced his own writing process, about his three decades of writing about fatality fires, and about his upcoming project that will explore the Yarnell Hill Fire and the history of Hotshot Cruise in the United States. I'll let John take it from here, but thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, I'm working on two projects right now. Uh, I'm finishing up a book called Home Waters, a chronicle of family and a river, which is surprisingly enough about my family and the Blackfoot River. Uh, and I'm also working with a partner, Holly Neal, on a long-term project about the Yarnell Hill fire. Uh, we're all familiar with Yarnell Hill. It killed 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hotshots in 2013. Um, there have been a number of books already about Yarnell Hill, so the only reason to do another one is to do something that goes on a deeper dive than the others have gone, um, and that takes a great deal of time. We're seven years into the project. Uh, we've got a way to go with it. Home Waters, on the other hand, is scheduled for publication in 2021. And it has some fire stuff in it. It is a, uh, a fishing book and a family book uh, and a river book, but it's also got uh, a pretty fair description of my dad's work on Young Men and Fire uh, and how that came to publication. So that's what I'm up to. That's great. Yeah, I mean, your dad is a pretty prolific writer. Uh, did the I'm, I'm curious what inspired you. I know you published Young Men and Fire posthumously for your dad. Um, I was wondering what kind of inspired that and why you felt that was kind of an important project to, to get off the ground. Well, my dad worked on uh, Young Men and Fire for uh, way over a decade, the final years of his life, really from about uh, 73 when he started it to the age of 87 when he died. Um, in his final years, of course, you know, he couldn't work as hard as he did at the beginning. I'm learning all about this as I get older and older <laughs> and try to, uh, to keep this thing going. Mm -hmm. uh, it started out, Young Man and Fire, uh, as a very simple story. He was going to do the kind of thing that I do, which is recreate uh, a fatal wildland fire. He'd actually visited the Man Gulch fire. Uh, while it was still uh, a hot fire, while the embers were still hot. 
he was out at Seely Lake that summer alone uh, in 1949, and uh, drove over to uh, to Wolf Creek, where my which is my mother's town, uh, which is right near Man Gulch. And his brother-in-law, my uncle Ken Burns, had fought the Man Gulch fire. So they borrowed a, a power wagon, a Dodge power wagon, and drove into the fire ground. Uh, it's a memorable scene in the book, Young Men on Fire, because they discover a dying uh, uh, buck deer, and they can't do anything about it because they'd forgotten to bring a rifle. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he, he thought that uh, after a river runs through it, uh, and its success, uh, that he could uh, just knock off a, a short recreation uh, type book on uh, the Van Gulch fire and then move on to other things. This is pretty ambitious. I mean, the guy's in, heading into his middle 70s, but that was his ambition. Uh, and I go into that in some depth in uh, Home Waters of why that was something that worked on him and drove him at. Uh, that late stage of his life. The book as a recreation didn't work out. He wasn't that kind of a writer. Uh, he was capable of doing uh, uh, mighty things, but he was not capable of a simple recreation of a, of a fatal wildland fire. And after a couple of years, he realized it, uh, that it just it didn't work. <clears throat> and he more or less took it back from himself uh, and began turning it into what it eventually became, which is uh, a great book that is deeply flawed in places. The best analysis that's ever been done of it was done by Alan Thomas, who was the editor of Young Men on Fire at uh, the University of Chicago Press. And his conclusion was that you can have a great book that has flaws in it, uh, as this one does. He did not complete it by the time he died at the age of 87. Uh, and my sister Jean and I uh, really questioned whether or not we should take it to a publisher. That seems ridiculous now, you know, whoa, how could you even think of not doing it? But uh, the book that we knew uh, and that I had read was not a good one. It was the early book. Mm -hmm. So we had it read by other people and the consensus was, well, maybe you ought to take it to a publisher because of the amount of work he's done on it. And, you know, it's like mining uh, ore. I mean, there's a lot of stuff around the ore that, is, uh, that obscures the, the beauty and the glory of it. Uh, Alan Thomas did not rewrite my father's book. It is his book, The Words and the Vision are His. But he did a lot of rearranging. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a big project. And he wrote about that in a publisher's note. And I leave it to him to, to explain all that. I actually did the reading of Young Men on Fire for the audio version, the first one. They've since canceled me out, Marie John. <laughs> uh, uh, it was, honestly, in a lot of ways, the first time I'd ever read the book. Uh, although, as I say, we took it to the press, and uh, I did a lot of editing on it uh, at the end, fact-checking kind of stuff. And so I'd actually read it. But when I read it out loud, Amanda, it was an entirely different book, and it was stunning. I've never read anything that easy in my life. Um, and I've done a lot of, uh, of that kind of reading. Uh, I was working with a, a producer, an audio producer at the time, 
and he couldn't believe it. We could do 20 or 25 pages without a single break. And that just doesn't happen when you do that kind of work. You're always being stopped and let's <clears throat> go back and get the rhythm right or get the period or the commas right and all that kind of stuff. And it, it doesn't happen. That thing just lays it out for you. It's very simple. So that's the story of, of how it happened uh, to get into publication. Uh, it was there, the, the ore was there, um, but it took some identification and work to get it out. Right. So, so your dad was working on this, um, you know, in the, in the seventies, in the eighties, you know, to some, to, to some extent. And That's correct. do you remember, um, you know, what kind of influence did that have on your, your own writing? In what well, way? it kind of put me off it, uh, initially. I mean, you know, this thing went on for 14 years. I'd call him in the morning from, I was Washington correspondent for the Tribune and I'd call him sometimes in the morning and interrupt him. <laughs> and say, how's the book going? You know, this would be 10 years after he started it. He said, oh, it's a pillar of uh, fire by night and a cloud by day, and it's leading me on. And, you know, he was wrestling with it. He was having an awful lot of trouble with it. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you really want to get involved in. It sounded like the briar patch being tossed into the briar patch. Um, but after it came out, it was a big success. And as I say, after I read it, I realized what it was and how good it was. Then I got to a point in my career uh, where I worked for the Tribune for 30 years. And, uh, but I was still very young, relatively, well, looks to me now like I was just a youngster. <laughs> uh, and I was ready to get out. I mean, my job had become repetitious. Uh, if you worked at one place at the same job for 30 years, um, you, know, you should ask yourself, why am I still here? What am I doing? And uh, I quit the Tribune. Uh, I didn't re retire. People think I retired and lived on a pension. That's not the way it happened. Um, and things came together at the same time. The South Canyon fire happened in 1994 and killed 14 people, including three smoke jumpers. That was the first time smoke jumpers had died from flames since Man Gulch. Um, an editor came over to my desk at, as the fire was burning, as the South Canyon fire was burning. He said, John, you know, you really ought to do something about this. Uh, and at the time, the newspaper articles and the wire service copy coming out of Colorado where it happened, were all talking about the similarities between the South Canyon fire and the Mangulch fire and mentioning young men on fire uh, approvingly. And I said, well, let me think about this for a minute. And he was a very fine editor by the name of Owen Youngman. And he, uh, he did. He let me think about it. And I came back to him. I said, look, Owen, if you send me out there right now, it's three days after the fatalities. I'm going to get what the Associated Presses got and not much more. And you're going to put a McLean byline on a, basically a wire service story. Well, why don't we do this instead? Why don't I go to Man Gulch mm -hmm. on the anniversary? It's coming up in August. Everybody says this is just like Man's Gulch. Uh, let's see if that's true. And I think I can get my dad's research partner, Laird Robinson, uh, to go with me and I can get some other people and we can get different points of view and talk about this. Mm -hmm. And Owen looked at me and he said, do it. So I did. And I uh, went out to Montana on the Tribune's Nickel, which is just unbelievable to be able to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a real reach to get from Chicago or from the East Coast to Montana. And here I was on expenses. 
uh, and took a bunch of guys in there, including Laird Robinson, and we talked about it, and it was very moving. And I wrote a long piece for the Tribune about it. Uh, and uh, an editor put a headline on it, Fire on the Mountain. And I thought, you know, I'm done here. I've uh, you know, gotten my dad's book to publication. Uh, I read the audio version of it. Uh, I've gone to Man Gulch when the Echo event happens. And I'd really like to live my own life. And then I called the family of Don Mackey, uh, who was the smoke jumper in charge on South Canyon, who was killed along with the others and began talking to them. They lived in the Bitterhead Valley uh, near Hamilton, uh, which by the way is at the mouth of Blodgett Canyon, which is uh, a key scene in one of my dad's stories in a river runs through it. I mean, you keep getting these hits and all these connections oh, yeah. get drawn into it. And pretty soon you see that you know, you're facing destiny. Uh, I'm a great believer in destiny. I think everybody of worth has one and you have the ability to turn away from it. Uh, you do not have to follow your destiny, but if you don't, you don't live an authentic life. That's my religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I began to study South Canyon Fire and I wrote a book proposal. And everything came together on the same day. I made plans to leave the Tribune and uh, we had an auction for the book proposal. And within one hour, the uh, auction closed and I walked in and quit and got in my Jeep and uh, headed for Colorado. Wow, that's awesome. And yeah, and so what did you do? What, what went, how did it go from there? Well, I thought I was one and done. Again, I keep thinking this and I keep being wrong. You know, I did Fire on the Mountain and it came out and it, was got, uh, it did well. And uh, uh, I thought, well, I'm gonna find something else to write about and I'm gonna be a great 360 degree literary figure. Uh, it hasn't worked out that way. Um, fatality fires kept happening and the families or friends of the people who were killed uh, would get in touch with me one way or another and said, look, you ought to come and come and take a look at this thing. It's not right. They're blaming uh, our children. They're blaming my friends. They're blaming the dead. And the dead cannot speak for themselves. But you've shown in Fire in the Mountain that you can speak for the dead. Please do something about this. And sometimes I say no. Uh, and sometimes I say yes. And I've now written five books uh, about fatal wildland fires. Darnell Hill is the sixth and it will be the last. Uh, and in between I've done this other book, uh, Home Waters, which has just been uh, a real pleasure to do. Uh, it hasn't taken very long. Uh, I got a full text done in a year. And uh, I get to tell all these stories that I'm telling you uh, and a lot of family stories too. Yeah, I can't wait to read Home Waters. I'm going to buy that like as soon as possible. Um, Bless your little heart. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, you've got a, I think you've got a bird chirping. Is that a bird in the background? Uh, we have squirrels and birds here. Oh, okay. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, my office is in, a, in, in the attic. And squirrels live in the attic. I some regularly live trap them out of there, but uh, they inhabit this place. And so do uh, a whole nest, nesting of uh, sparrows in the gutter. 
I think it'll sure. give the audio some character. I'll keep it I in. I think it will, too, yeah. <laughs> and we did uh, the uh, Young Men on Fire audio. We did it at the cabin uh, in Seely Lake. And the guy who'd done it called me up at one point. He said, oh, well, you know, I've edited it all. And it's really nice. He said, there's one place uh, where I can't edit it out. And there's a squirrel chirping in the background. And I said, so what? <laughs> Living with Fire podcast is supported by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. It's not an over-exaggeration to say that I've spent more time with the Mystery Ranch pack than I have with my family and friends over the last four summers. Every crew I've worked on has used Mystery Ranch's packs. So this being the case, I've seen their line gear shoved into and tossed out of the back of trucks. I've watched them get covered in flying embers and have used one as a pillow many, many times. Through it all, I've never so much as had a zipper break on one of their packs. But Mystery Ranch doesn't just make fire packs. They've also got packs for hunting, backpacking, climbing, and skiing. I personally love their women's backcountry ski pack, which is low profile, sized for women, and has been perfect for resort laps on high avalanche danger days at Mount Baker or for day trips in the backcountry. After all that time spent with the Mystery Ranch pack on, I can confidently say that their products are not only durable and comfortable, but some of the best backpacks in the industry, whether you're carrying a fire shelter, hunting gear, or avalanche gear. Learn more and check out their lineup of great products at mysteryranch.com. And so I want, I guess going back, I'm, I'm curious, all of your books are really incredibly well-researched, obviously, very thorough. Can you tell me a bit about your process and kind of how uh, Fire on the Mountain informed that process and how you sort of developed that? Well, it informed the process from, you know, 30 years of being a newspaper man. Yeah. And, uh, you, know, you take documents and in that case, the uh, investigative documents. I think I was the first person to seriously file a Freedom of Information Act request about fire investigation documents. Uh, you know, you have to go back and look at the time, 1995. That wasn't a common thing. Now everybody does it. And uh, I was able to obtain an awful lot of the original uh, interviews uh, and documentation. And then I started from that and then I, I visited people and talked to people uh, all across the West. And I spent uh, quite a bit of time doing that. Uh, and I figured at the end that I had put 50,000 miles on my Jeep. Uh, doing interviews of that kind. Uh, these were supplemental interviews, and they, that was really the foundation uh, for the book. Uh, you, then you do cross comparisons and so on. Yarnall Hill has been uh, a much more elaborate thing going off from that. I have a research partner, Holly Neal, who does deep dives that uh, baffle me with their uh, profundity. Uh, you can go a lot farther uh, uh, today, uh, because there is more stuff available, dispatch records, um, resource ordering records, all this kind of thing. I didn't get those uh, very much uh, on Fire on the Mountain. It just, the database wasn't there. There's a much broader database now. Mm -hmm. uh, so the process has evolved uh, over the last 25, 30, well, it's 26 years. Mm -hmm. Right. So are there other are there other things you've sort of recognized or patterns that you've recognized in the last 30 years of reporting on these fires? Yeah, you know, there is, which is that things go wrong on fires. <clears throat> it's, you know, fire is a chaotic environment. Uh, and Paul Gleason 
uh, once remarked that uh, fire is good faith decisions uh, made under chaotic decisions with the best of intentions. And you can't really do a lot better than that. Paul Gleason was a great man, one of the great fathers of fire safety. What has happened is that the safety regime has ratcheted way up, uh, starting with you know the 10 standard orders and the 18 watch outs. Uh, Paul Gleason's uh, abbreviation of that LCES, uh, the lessons learned from South Canyon and other fires. South Canyon, the big lesson learned, but you know, there's sometimes you just say no. The empowerment of people down to the uh, guys who's, and women whose uh, butts are in the air and whose noses are in the dirt. Uh, that's all to the good, and it's been a major fundamental shift uh, taken together with a lot of technological advances, uh, particularly in the air. Uh, the DC-10s and the very large air tankers that are flying now, that flew two of them, uh, flew on uh, Yarnell Hill, uh, are supposed to be game changers. And yet, and yet, Amanda, people keep dying on wildland fires, sometimes in very large numbers, uh, as on Yarnell Hill, 19 people. I mean, you have to go back 100 years uh, to get a higher number. Uh, than that. So why does this happen? Uh, well, it happens because wildland fire is really dangerous stuff. The wildland urban interface uh, has grown like topsy and people do fight harder uh, when homes are at stake uh, and people will die. You cannot eliminate that entirely and the notion of never again doesn't work. Uh, you can say that, but it, nature has a different way take on this. Uh, what you can do, and what I have seen has happened, is you can extend the interval between major wildland fire fatality disasters. It can take longer to get from one to another. Uh, and that has definitely happened. And that's happened because there are so many people in this business who are right-minded and who want to do the right thing and work diligently uh, to make things better. Uh, it, the amount of heart that goes into it, as well as brains, uh, is one reason to stick with uh, the fire service. Uh, there are a lot of good people in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in your perspective, has firefighter safety evolved uh, since you researched Fire in the Mountain? Oh, absolutely. Uh, very much so. And uh, you can see that the way it's evolved. Everybody puts safety first. That's always been the case. Uh, but you have a lot of fires being fought intensely. And uh, the rate at which big events happen has been uh, reduced in frequency. Uh, certainly not in intensity, as Granite Mountain showed. But the number of things that went wrong on Granite Mountain, I can tell you, is, is astronomical. I mean, he gets blamed on Eric Marsh, the superintendent, uh, because he made a bad decision after four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a bad decision. Mm -hmm. There were an awful lot of other things uh, that went on uh, for the two and a quarter days that that fire, well, not quite 48 hours uh, before the fatality happened. Uh, that contributed to a, a sense of a, a kind of a shambolic uh, fire scene. 
And you have to weigh that against the fact that it was less than 48 hours. I mean, they were in a very early stage of fighting that fire. Once you get things settled, you know, you've had three or four days and you've got a type one team in and you've got a huge fire camp and there's a thousand of you guys out there. Things settle down and it's regimented and safety is regimented. But boy, at the beginning of these things, for the first 48 hours or 72 hours, you know, you don't have a handle on fire. Fire does strange stuff. Uh, it does what it feels like doing. It doesn't do what you want it to do. Uh, limbs fall from trees and kill people. Uh, you're not going to stop that from happening. The amount of things that have to be done now, all the requirements are really extensive, but it's almost become a cobweb. Uh, we had a fire near our cabin at Sealy Lake, and a guy got killed uh, almost the first day. I think it was the first day by, by a widowmaker. Limb fell, hits man on head, he dies. And they just stood everything down. <clears throat> and that became a very controversial decision afterward because the fire got away from them. It had been just a very small fire, and they could have nailed it. Uh, but all of a sudden, you can't do anything. You pull the crews off and give them a debriefing because there was a fatality. You stop everything in the air. You stop, don't have any dipping from the lake or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, you created a much more dangerous situation mm -hmm. where the fire is ripping, and it didn't have to. Uh, there isn't an easy answer to that. I know some of the personalities involved in that. That was not an easy call. Um, and rules are there that you have to follow. But the fire doesn't follow all the rules. Some of the rules, fire labs have traced all this stuff. They know a lot about how, what it's going to do and so on. But this is a natural environment where things can blow up very quickly and unexpectedly. Absolutely. And I am curious, um, through the years, I'm curious what tends to be the toughest part of reporting on some of these fatality fires, whether it's your Amanda, dealing with the families, it's very, very difficult. I can imagine. Uh, you know, I'm not a social worker, I'm a reporter. And, uh, you know, you, you got to have heart and you got to be with them. Um, <clears throat> and then you got to get away from them. Uh, I've made some of the best friends I've ever made in life in the fire service. Uh, and I stay in touch with some families. Uh, but I have, I'm glad I live in the East, to be honest with you. Yeah. I don't think I could handle it very well if I was out there all the time in that milieu uh, 12 months out of the year. Uh, and that's, that's fair. You know, I'm out there part of the time. And after I write a book, I go back. I go back and look people in the eye that I've written about. Mm -hmm. and I tell them, you know, if you want to say anything, I'm here. Good, bad, indifferent. And I've had all three. <laughs> uh, but then I, I try to have an independent life, uh, too, and part of it is geographic. And so given that, why, why is it important for you to document these fatality fires? Why have you felt that sort of calling? Um, well, people tell me that it serves a purpose, and I think that it does. Uh, I think, first of all, that it memorializes an event. Uh, I think it provides the consolation of explanation. Uh, which is not to be undervalued. Uh, families or people who lose, uh, suffer great loss, go through stages. These are fairly well documented by the psychiatric community, and it begins with rage. Some people never get over that, but most do. What I've observed is that there's 
about a five-year break. After five years, uh, things can change. And the lust for revenge tends to lessen, but the desire for satisfying explanation never lessens. Uh, it's best to have it and put it in the past, but it's a necessary thing. The investigative process on fire, while on fire fatalities is rushed by nature. Uh, I've dealt with a lot of these guys who are really good men and women, and they have 30, 60, 90 days uh, to do a report on a highly complex uh, event, and they come up short, and uh, they know it, and so does everybody else. So what I can do is spend five years uh, on an event like that and dig into it deeper and give people a chance to have their own voice. That's important. You know, if you can quote the families, if you can quote the participants, uh, not speaking to a superior for an official report, but just talking. Uh, it's different when that appears. Uh, and it gives satisfaction and solace. Uh, I think that really does happen. What I've also found and what I'm really gladdened by is that young people coming into fire uh, can read my books. My books are written for them. Uh, I know big words and I can write complicated sentences, but I don't do that very much. I write straightforward, uh, short sentences. Uh, I try to use common terminology. Uh, I've been criticized for that, but let that be because people who normally don't read books <laughs> can read my books. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you go into the fire service and the wildland fire service, a lot of people start out by saying, well, okay, I wanna learn something about this, where do I start? Well, they're told sometimes, why don't you start with Fire on the Mountain or another of McLean's books. Um, and they can do that. If you wanna get into the complicated history of wildland fire, you know, you can read something like Stephen Pine's Fire in America, and it's there. I mean, Stephen has done a, is the great historian of wildland fire, but a lot of kids don't read that stuff. Mm -hmm. They read my stuff, and they see things that people who've been around for a long time say, yeah, yeah, he didn't get it. He didn't get it perfect, but he got it pretty much the way it is, kid. Uh, and they can take that to heart, and I, uh, and learn from it. I have looked for a long time for one case where I have saved somebody's life and I have not been able to find it. I've been told that I've saved lives and I've had people come to me and tell me, you saved my life. And I've looked into it and I didn't. I had a case like, well, I would love to find it. You know, uh, I had a case uh, on the Esperanza fire where a guy came to me long afterward and, and very distressed, and said, uh, you did save my life. And he was so distressed that uh, I wouldn't interview him at the time. <clears throat> and uh, got him, he got himself into a less distressed state uh, with some professional help that was available to him after that fire. Mm -hmm. And then we did an interview. And I discovered that <clears throat> he had read my book and his engine was threatened uh, by the fire. And he had prepared for that because of my book. And he had stuff in a, a compartment of the engine. That isn't what saved him. It gave him a sense of being 
safe and having a defense at hand. What saved him was his captain in the engine who knew exactly what to do, uh, who hauled a fellow crew person uh, up a ridge using uh, uh, the hose to pull him up, got them all in a safe lee of the, of the firestorm behind a building, and that's what saved his life. Uh, but I've met him since then, and we're, you know, it, it was wonderful uh, because there is a kind of closeness there, uh, a life-saving closeness, except I didn't save his life. <laughs> uh, I tried to get a hold of the captain, by the way, and he wouldn't talk to me. Some people don't want to talk to me. <laughs> I kind of like that. You know, this guy, well, I mean, he'd done his job. He doesn't need to talk to some writer. Uh, and he went on his way, and I went on my way. And Okay, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, you could have never anticipated probably having that sort of impact when you first started doing this. I know I've read Fire on the Mountain. The second I decided that I wanted to do Fire, that was the first thing I did oh. was I went and bought Fire on the Mountain and then Young Men in, Fi Young Men in Fire closely afterwards. But um, do you do you think that you've this reporting has any had any impact on maybe not on saving people's lives, as you've said, but on new strategy and tactics or any any updates <clears throat> in the in the fire world in that way? I think I contributed to the mix. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot done after uh, the South Canyon fire. Jack Ward Thomas, who was chief of the Forest Service, uh, spent a million dollars on a study uh, of management practices that caused a lot of changes. Uh, I've never written extensively about it because it was management practices, but that changed a lot. Uh, the BLM did made some changes, including personnel changes. Uh, the whole push for just saying no and empowering people on the fire line, that came from the fire line before the book came out. Mm -hmm. But the book says it and ratifies it and gives it some added strength. You know, there's a little pillar underneath that whole movement. So I don't claim to have led that drive for firefighter safety after South Canyon, which continues to this day. But I do claim to be part of it, uh, and I'm glad to have been part of it. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, there are a lot of people in the fire service who know how to lead on this. Uh, and it isn't a perfect science. You try something, it works. You try something else, and it doesn't work. Um, doubling the size of the hotshot crews after the 2000 uh, the National Fire Report. Um, created a lot of wobbly hotshot crews. Uh, <clears throat> a lot was done to try to strengthen them and shore them up. That was not a very safe situation for a while. Uh, so it's an evolving situation. And I keep trying to feed it uh, with more books. Which brings me, I was going to ask a little bit more about your new book um, that you have coming out about Yarnell Hill and kind of how you're making it a little bit more of a unique look at the broader at the broader hotshot sort of um, world in general. So yeah, one of the really fun things that I've done in that book is to go back and uh, uh, do the history of hotshotting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other people have tried this. Um, uh, Dave Provencio, who's the head of the Hotshot Association, started this website um, page where hotshot crews can write their histories and, and plug them in. That's a really nice thing. Uh, Lincoln Bramwell, who was the historian for the U.S. Forest Service, wrote a piece called, Where Did We Get Our Hotshots? 
and others have given it a shot. But it has never really been pulled together uh, with all its historical um, background. And I've tried to do that. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and it's in the book. It's, uh, oh, I don't know, I suppose it's 2,500 words, 3,000 words long. And you can trace the word hotshot way back to the 16th century, where it meant a hot-headed fellow. Um, but you get into the actual formation of the hotshots, and it turns out that there is a common year uh, with smoke jumpers, 1939, uh, when there was an experiment, the first experiment uh, with smoke jumpers, and the first experiment with really large crews, trained large crews that went on in the same year. And I thought, oh boy, I've got it here. I've got the, uh, the genesis and it has a common genesis and it's the Blackwater Fire, which was a year or two earlier. Because a guy named David Godwin, who became uh, head of essentially fire and aviation for the Forest Service, uh, went to the Blackwater Fire, 16 people died, and discovered that if they had gotten people there quicker, they would have saved lives. And this really bothered him. Uh, he was an aviation guy, and he is the godfather of smoke jumping. And he started what became the, uh, the first uh, smoke jumper experimental year in 1939. At the same time that was happening, there were people up in the Northwest who were dealing with enormous fires in the backcountry. And they needed large trained crews, you know, the kind of stumble bum crew that is part of the lore of the big burn of 1910, you know, where you recruit in saloons and people trade one good pair of boots among the recruits as they go to the table and uh, they're all kind of half drunk by the time they get to the fire. That doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And in 1939, they did an experiment with a highly trained crew and they kept met meticulous records of um, basically the calories ingested, the minutes spent, the amount of line constructed and all that kind of stuff. And they found out that these guys were head and shoulders above anything else. Uh, and this was despite the fact that they were put on the toughest fires. They were given the roughest jobs where the stumblebum crews, well, let's not call them stumblebums, let's call them uh, crews that were not highly trained, because some of them were pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, so those guys could not construct fire line at the rate of these other people, couldn't move, couldn't transport the way these guys did. And that eventually led to the creation of the hotshots. The earliest formal hotshot crew that I got is in the late 1940s, but it was really the 1950s. In California, of course, with their, well, you know, they, they are creative and they do have bad fire seasons. And they had five real honest to God hotshot crews. And it has grown from there to what it is today. So I've got all that history written uh, in the story and tried to do it colorfully uh, with uh, comments from uh, hotshots themselves about what the job is like. Mm -hmm. So when you wrote uh, when you wrote Fire on the Mountain, did you intend to continue writing this extensively about fire? Like, did uh, were the following books spurred from necessity or just from like this? Yeah, I guess what kind of inspired you to continue doing this work and get to the point where you're you're on your fifth book, sixth book about fire? Um, I'm on my Garner Hill will be my seventh book, my sixth book on fire. 
Well, I was inspired in part by my mortgages. <laughs> so this is the way I make a living, Amanda. Uh, I, said, I quit when I was 52 and I didn't re retire, I quit. And uh, I had to make a living. Before we go on, could I read you one quick little description of hotshotting that comes from a hotshot that I put in here and kind of cheat on my book? Yep. Uh, not, yeah, okay, it's just short. An anonymous hotshot wrote a vivid job description for applicants in the 1980s to inform and perhaps caution them about what lay ahead. Quote, the hotshot crew is so named because of the need for tough, knowledgeable, hard individuals who can be sent ahead of the main contingents of ordinary labor crew and independently drive holding lines around critical segments of the fire, hold their lines, and survive. So hotshot. Why do you think it's important to sort of document this history, the history of hotshotting? Because nobody else has done it, because there are a lot of hotshots, because they have become the mainstay of the ground battle, which is increasing. Uh, the two biggest things uh, I've seen change in wildland fire have been the uh, increase of the wildland urban interface and the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, firefighting is becoming more dangerous, uh, more necessary. Uh, we haven't cleaned out the forests, have all these wonderful plans for prescribed burns, but uh, getting into pre prescription, getting a day or two of prescription, uh, sometimes doesn't happen for a year or two. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the forests are getting cl clogged up and it's getting hotter and drier. Where do you think this is going? It's going to the hotshots and others, but the hotshots are a fundamental part of that now. Now you're focusing probably more on the human element in the Yarnell Hill book. Will you be touching on the climate, the, the element of climate change and the influence of climate change and also- Oh, I know because it's impossible to, uh, I've found it impossible anyway, to relate climate change to any single fire. The uh, weather behavior on uh, the Yarnell Hill fire was within the boundaries of extreme weather in the Southwest. It happens, right. uh, it will happen again. It is not, oh, this is the climate change fire. Uh, no, it's not. And uh, if you try to, to stretch it like that, I think you are doing a disservice. There are books coming out in profusion about the effects of climate on fire. I am not writing one of them. It is what, not what I do. Right. Uh, something very, very different. And to a certain extent, climate change has become a scapegoat for a myriad of other issues that are contributing to these larger fires, whether it's wildland urban interface or mismanagement. It's really easy to peg it on climate change when in reality, there's a lot of different things at play here. Um, talk about, you know, what can you do to make things better now? <laughs> can you add more rules about firefighter safety? And as we've talked here, you know, there's been an awful lot of rules added about firefighter safety and sometimes they don't work. Uh, the biggest area I think where there can be improvement is in residences and other structures within the wildland urban interface and people taking uh, steps to protect themselves. So you have one way in and one way out and you never have another paradise in California where people get trapped that way because they have taken steps to get out of there. Well, some of those who were trapped and got out you know, were smoke jumpers, retired smoke jumpers. I mean, it isn't like you got stupid, dumb people out there. You got people who know what's going on out there. It's just that it's very hard to live uh, in the forest, in a cabin these days and do it safely. And that's a place where I think that there is a lot of room for improvement. Did you ever consider writing about the Paradise Fire, the campfire? Nope. Nope. Right, yeah. 
it's a, there's a book out about it. I mean, it, it's not my thing. Not your thing. Uh, it's, uh, I need a relatively small number of people so that you can see their faces and know who they are. Uh, the number of people involved in that is just catastrophic and they're, I mean, sympathetic with it, uh, God almighty. But uh, it isn't the kind of narrative uh, that I do. I do my thing. And right. I don't pretend to be uh, all things to all men and fire. And that's it for our fourth episode of Living with Fire. A huge thanks to John for taking time off from writing to speak with me. And I did want to offer one quick note before I left that this episode was filmed before the current fire crisis that's occurring across the U.S., and that I'd like to retroactively edit my statement about climate change as a scapegoat for a list of other complex issues that contribute to the tragedy that's playing across the West right now. Climate change is, of course, one of many ingredients contributing to greater fire spread caused by extremely dry fuels and more extreme weather. My hope, though, is that we can continue to seek proactive ways to prevent these fires in the future. And, in my opinion, blaming climate change exclusively doesn't continue to push that conversation forward. Anyways, my one ask for you today is to share this podcast with one friend who you think might like it. Whether that's someone who works in fire, enjoys public lands, or lives in a fire-prone area, my hope is that they'll enjoy learning more about fire and the ways we interact with it. Signing off for now, and I hope to catch you on the next episode.